want you to turn your Bibles this morning to two places, Genesis chapter 3 and 1 Corinthians 10. Genesis 3 and 1 Corinthians 10. The verse that we're going to discuss this morning is 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 13 that says, No temptation has seized you but such as is common to man, but God is faithful. He will not tempt you beyond what you can bear, but will make him the way out so that you can stand under it. So the topic of our discussion this morning I think is very evident, and it is the word temptation. Uh, Every individual faces it, and the Word of God gives us some incredible truth that will help us to, in the end, find ourselves having done everything to stand. The word for temptation in the New Testament is an interesting word. It's used in a good way, and it's used in a bad way. Uh, Most of us, when we hear the word temptation, do you tend to think, Negative or positive? Raise your hand if when you hear the word temptation, you think negatively. Okay? And how many of you think positively? That's what I thought. Okay. So what do the rest of you think? You're afraid to think. Don't want to admit. Okay. Here's the way the word's used in the Bible. In one sense, and and here's what's fascinating. If you go to, and I'll just give you these as illustrations. When the Bible says that Jesus was led out in the wilderness to be tempted of the devil... The Greek word there in the verbal form is the same word that's used in James chapter 1. Okay, in Matthew 4, Jesus was led out of the wilderness to be tempted. Was it negative or positive? Raise your hand if you think it was negative. Raise your hand if you think it was positive. Raise your hand if you think it's a trick question. Okay? It's a trick question. Okay? God's design in the temptation of Jesus, led out there by the Spirit to be tempted, was not to solicit him to evil, but was to demonstrate the possibility of victory over evil. So that temptation on the Father's part was to demonstrate the character of his Son. When Satan came to Jesus and said, hey, you've been out here 40 days and look really hungry. Turn those stones to bread. Was that a solicitation to good or evil? What was it? Evil. Okay, when Satan comes, his aim through trials, through testings, is not to produce in you a greater likeness in in, in reflection of Jesus. That's not his aim. So in the same event, Satan came to tempt him. The Spirit led him out to be tempted. There are two different outcomes that are in view. Satan's aim to solicit the evil, God's purpose to exalt the glory of his son, God in flesh, in all of his perfections, so that when he goes to the cross, he is the spotless lamb of God who was tempted in every way like we are, yet without sin. Okay, so temptation as a word in the New Testament, same Greek word, okay, has Positive outcomes. Stay put, James 1, 2 says, under trials. And after you have done it, it will produce in you staying power. Okay, a, a stick to in your spiritual walk. Isn't that exactly what Paul's saying? So that at the end of verse 13 of 1 Corinthians 10, so that after it's done, you can stand. And I love it because when I go to Ephesians chapter 6, what does it say? Put on the whole armor of God. Do it. And then he gives a list of things. And at the end, what does he say? Do it so that you can stand. And having done everything, stand. Folks, is that, if you know Christ, isn't that where you want to be at the end of your life? Standing in this way, not in perfection. 
but standing faithful. In the end, found doing what God wanted me to do with my life in the grand scheme of the picture of my life. Not that there won't be temptation that leads to moral failure in my life from time to time. But the truth is that this verse, 1 Corinthians 10, 13, gives you an enormous promise about what happens in seasons of testing and temptation. You can see it from Satan's perspective. You can see it from God's perspective. And the difference is magnificent and glorious. Now, to get into 1 Corinthians 10, 13, I want to look at Genesis chapter 3. I want to give you a real quick overview of this. I'm going to use three words stolen from another sermon. Okay, so I'm just putting this out front. I heard Tim Keller about 13 years ago, I believe, preach a sermon on Genesis chapter 3. I will never forget the outline to the sermon. And I'm going to give you those three words, first of all, to give you a picture of what temptation looks like so that you understand what we're talking about in 1 Corinthians 10, 13. Okay, in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, the picture is what Satan does to Adam and Eve in the garden at the beginning. It is solicitation to evil. Okay, that's the... The picture in 1 Corinthians 10, 13. To get a clarity on that idea of solicitation to evil, let's go back to Genesis chapter 3 and follow along with me, if you will. Genesis 3, verse 1, the creation. At the end of creation, man is married to woman. God looks at the whole picture, and what does God say? This is good. That is, it is morally pure. There is no sin present. It is glorious. Okay, that's the picture. Chapter 3. Now, and it... One thing I remember, I took a year of Hebrew, okay, in seminary. If you ask me if I remember any Hebrew, I'm going to tell you, I don't remember anything except this, okay? In the Hebrews, there's something called a wow consecutive, okay? I said wow when I saw my grade in Hebrew, okay? It was, it was pretty sorry. But the wow consecutive is when you move from one story or what they would call pericopes, an, an account, to another account, Okay, and the wow consecutive is to say there's a transition, but it is in fact a continuation of the same story. So Genesis 1 and 2, you find creation, beauty, glory, all is good. Genesis chapter 3, now. And at first you say, okay, this could be good and this could be bad. Okay, in this case, it's a negative. It says, now the serpent was more crafty. That is, some of the translations say cunning. I think the old King James Version said cunning. But most of us don't know what that word means. It doesn't sound good though, right? But he was, cra- he was crafty, he was, he was sneaky, he was slippery. That's the idea. That's why we, when people use the word, you know, that guy's like a snake in the grass. That's not a compliment, okay? Snakes scare me badly. I was at Jack Brink's house. This, this is an aside. I was at Jack Brink's house about a month and a half ago, and he said they have these snakes in their pond. He tells me they're jumping snakes, and I'm like, I'm not buying it. Brown water snakes of some kind that are supposed to be jumping. So I'm, what am I doing? I'm like, let's flip in every board I could find to see if I can find one of those snakes. You know, finally I flipped the board and guess what I found? I found a jumping snake. And guess what I became? A jumping pastor, okay? <laughs> oh, you know, I don't have any affection for snakes. And, and, and the reason is partly the way they are, but partly because of the picture that we have from the Old Testament. There's, a, there's an, 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 an something that's ominous and foreboding that's tied to being around them. Okay, when I'm on hikes with my daughters, occasionally I'll say, oh, watch that snake. Like, what, 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 what? Okay, because they're fearful. There's that picture. The serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say, you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Now, three words describe the process. So there's going to be the approach of the serpent. There's going to be a dialogue. And then there's going to be his response that you won't die. In fact, God knows something you don't know. 
Okay, that's the flow of the story. So there's first the, what Tim Keller called the snicker. Okay, folks, I want you to think about this. Okay, in any case in culture, when they want to change the moral standard, the moral absolute, what do people first do? They make a joke out of it. Okay, so when I'm at the high school play this spring, what happened? The topic of homosexuality is raised, and it becomes a snicker. It becomes something to laugh at. Why? First, take away the defenses, and then make, make the a behavior that is inappropriate seem appropriate or respectable or okay. What does Satan do? Well, the first thing he says to her is this. He says, did God really say, and you can hear the snicker in the voice, can't you? Come on. Did God really say that you may not eat from any tree in the garden? Fascinating, because what is Satan really doing? Satan is exaggerating the restriction that God has placed. There's only one tree they can't eat from. Where Satan distress What's the purpose? To make it look like God is restrictive. God has taken him. He can't be serious. It's that kind of a picture. So there's first the snicker, which leads to a deadly dialogue. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat from the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat from the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. Did God say that last part? No. God didn't say you may not touch it. Now, would there, would there be wisdom in touching it? The answer is no, but that is not something God said. So her response to the exaggeration is a dialogue that, in a sense, impugns God. It, it, there's a suspicion or something is raised about the character. Is God really good? And if he was, why would he restrict my behavior in regards to this? Why would he put such a limitation in my life? Second statement from Satan. And this is... Think it to your mind, okay? Here's written word. You will not surely die. How does he say that? Is it a factual monotone? You will not surely die. Because unfortunately, that's how many of us read the Bible. We don't read it. Okay, what is he doing? It's a sneer. So there's a snicker that that first laughs at the boundary, and then there's a sneer that says, are you kidding me? You're not going to die? You get the picture. Mock and minimize the consequence of sin. That is the culture I live in. Okay, if you can eliminate the consequences of behavior, then the behavior is okay. So if you do the wrong thing in the right setting, the behavior all of a sudden is right. So if you overdrink in a setting and don't get in your car and drive, you're still a good person. Right? If you have sex with someone that you shouldn't have sex with outside of marriage or with the same-sex partner, as long as you have protection and don't endure consequences, your decision is somehow a good, wise, moral decision. Is that the world you live in? It's what your kids are taught in school, folks. And when they get to college, it's what's exhibited, not talked about. Okay, and if your kids are in a secular school, I hope you know that. And I hope you have the courage to sit down and have these hard discussions with them so that they are prepared for what is coming their way. What they're going to face is first the snicker. Then they're going to face the sneer. You're kidding me. You believe that? You practice moral purity? Are you kidding me? You won't really die there. And what's the, what's the goal? Separate sin from consequences. And if you can effectively do that, it's fine. If you steal at work and don't get caught, you're respected amongst your peers. I talk to people who have perfected how to steal time from their worker or from their employer. Everybody at work says, attaboy, good job. 
You did what was wrong, but you avoided the consequence. It's exactly what Satan is saying here. That's the day I live in. In terms of the sin of greed, you have a right to success. But Jesus says the love of money is the root of all evil. In regards to alcohol abuse, our culture wants to say, well, it's just a sickness. It's not a choice. Proverbs 21 says wine is a mocker and beer is a brawler. It will tear your life apart. In terms of sexuality, our culture wants us to describe it as a biological function or act that has no consequence if you protect yourself, which is a lie. Because sex cannot be separated from who you are. 1 Corinthians 7 says what? In sexual sin, you sin against your own body. It is a sin of a different kind from all other sins. So you can't really avoid the consequences. In In terms of comedy and the crudeness that is prevalent in comedy today, what does our world say? Well, it's entertainment. It won't affect you. What does God say? As a man thinks in his heart, so he is. So the sneer, oh, it, you can't, why can't I watch that? It's just entertainment. Why can't I do that? It's just a biological, physical act. The sneer. The last phase of temptation is this. Verse 4. I'm sorry, verse 5. God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Now the for God knows implies what? It implies the raising of doubt about what? About the integrity of God himself. You see, what, what, what Satan is saying to Eve is, if you participate in this, it will, it will give you consequences that are unbelievable, and God is holding those things from you. In the day that you eat of it, you'll be like him. You'll go up a notch. You'll experience an increase when the reality is what? You endure a deficit. That will change the human race, quite frankly, forever. Forever. So there's the, the snicker, the sneer. And what's the last word going to be? Starts with an S, N, O, O. You with me? The snooker. Okay, what's the snooker? So it's, somebody, it's a bait and switch. You promised me that and you got me this. And the moment... They partook of what Satan said was fine and that the consequences would in fact be good even though God said, don't go there. What happened? God came walking in the cool of the day and they hid themselves from God. Why? They had allowed Satan to to, to snicker at God's laws. They had allowed Satan to sneer at the thought of consequences and they got snookered by the evil one. They got so much more than they bargained for. And when God came, the most precious thing in human experience, which is fellowship with God. One friend said to me recently, he said, standing beside one of the wind chimes out behind my house, he said, when I hear the wind blow through that chime, he says, that chime is how I feel when God comes in the air. That there's music, that there's joy, that that relationship, untarnished by sin, is the greatest glory that we as Christians can enjoy. And what does Satan do? He came in and said, you know what? I doubt the goodness of your God. And even Adam bit the apple, proverbially speaking. They bought the lie. And they got snookered. They got tricked. They got deceived. And it happens all the time. Why? That's the nature. That's the picture of temptation that the Bible gives us. What you know in your heart is wrong. You participate in thinking, well, when I do this, I'm going to get something that I would miss if I don't do it. It it has to work that way in your mind. 
has to. So you delve into things that you know you shouldn't delve into, hoping to get things that you want, but always getting something different. And you keep doing it. And so do I. You know what the Bible calls that? The Bible calls that moral insanity in the book of Deuteronomy. How do I deal with temptation when it comes? And is it possible for me as a Christian man, for you as a Christian young person, for you as a Christian woman, is it possible for you to experience victory? Or, or, or do we have to be like the average Christian in America who lives a pessimistic life, knowing that victory is possible, but highly unlikely? Okay, if you believe that, then you don't understand 1 Corinthians 10, 13. And my desire this morning is to kind of unpack real quickly 1 Corinthians 10, 13 as a promise that I hope will adjust your attitude first, your posture towards God so that you can begin to experience victory that as God intended it in your Christian experience. The sad thing is, and I, and I find this all the time in my discussions with parents, particularly of teens, the expectation of failure, the accepting of mediocre Christian living, is normative in our culture. We've watered down the truth. We've listened to the snicker. We've heard the sneer. And quite frankly, we don't want to be the objects of those things. We don't want to be the people or the person that people snicker at and sneer at. That's, we don't want to be that person. But the end of that road that Adam and Eve went down is a road of death. It's the brokenness of relationship with God. How is the relationship with God restored? We have to learn how to fight temptation so that we keep the thing that keeps us from God out of our lives. So, how does this work? I'll give you this illustration in regards to temptation because I think it's important to understand what happened with Adam and Eve. Satan didn't dangle a hook in front of Adam and Eve. Satan dangled a hook with a nightcrawler on it. The hook was embedded in the nightcrawler so that it couldn't be seen and the fish bit. That's the way James chapter 1 describes what happened in verses 13 through 14, doesn't it? There's an enticement. Something looks better than it is. You can't see the gotcha inside, so you bite on it thinking that I can avoid the consequences and that maybe God is keeping something from me that could satisfy me. And so there's the lunge, there's the bite, and then all of a sudden there's the, that wasn't just a worm. Okay, folks, understand this. In regards to temptation, what Satan does with Adam and Eve, Satan never fishes with just a hook, ever. He always conceals the lie under the guise of something that looks satisfying and as if it is something that will produce joy. Okay, but that is never the case with temptation. The truth was, in the day that you eat of it, you will die. In sin, in sin you lose the immeasurable joy of fellowship with God. They hid themselves. Shame follows sin in every case. And at the root of temptation, at its very root, is this. There is a, an implied and implicit doubt, question raised about the goodness of God. Every time you sin, you say, Pastor, I don't think like that. Yes, you do. Yes, you do. In your mind, you know that God says, don't do this for whatever his reasons are that I may or may not understand. Okay, and then I calculate. Okay, I could say this right now and make this person in my life pay for their behavior. And God says don't, but you know what? I'm going to ignore God and make this person pay. Why? Because I think I'm going to get a benefit out of it. I think I'm going to get what I want. After it's done, how do you feel? 
Well, for a moment, how do you feel? Yeah. And then if you're a Christian, what happens? The Spirit of God goes on alert, right? And you're just like, what was I thinking? Okay, it's the way it works, isn't it? Whatever the temptation in your life is, you ignore God for a little bit, thinking that in the ignoring God, I'm going to get something that I really want, and when I get it, I realize there's a hook inside. And the reason I took the bait was there was an implicit doubt about the goodness of God. It's the only way a Christian will ever enter into sin. That life isn't all that it could be. So if I put aside God's directives and directions, His word, His laws, I'll be happier. Remember, there is always a hook inside when the evil one is fishing. At its root, temptation is an enticement to seek happiness and pleasure outside of the boundaries that God has established. The strength of it is the suggestion that the God who you serve is not really good. Okay, otherwise, temptation would be very easy to pass up. All right, let's look at 1 Corinthians 10, 13 then. Three words that I'll use to describe this text. Okay, let's read the verse. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. And I, I hope you see in the midst of this verse is an embedded statement of deep theology about God. Okay, the path to victory over sin is God, not Tim Hoff. Okay, it's not yourself. It's God. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. When you are tempted, he will, provide, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. First thing I notice is this. No temptation has seized you, has fallen upon you. It's the same idea from James chapter 1, talking about trials as opposed to solicitations to evil. Same word. When, when, when a trial seizes you, it's the idea is that you're going along in your life and all of a sudden, boom, I'm in a car accident. Or boom, I get a diagnosis from something I didn't want. Or boom, I'm in an argument with my mate. Or boom, my child falls off the, the, the moral ladder of life. It just, it's there. It, all of a sudden, it's there. Okay? No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. You know what the first thing that Satan wants to do with temptation is? He wants to isolate you. That's why I believe Christian living was never meant to be done alone. Okay, this is another verse, okay, that I think adds to the arsenal that says Christian living is a team sport. Okay, no temptation has come to you that someone else around you hasn't experienced. What do you want to think in your mind? And what does Satan just kind of bombard you with? The words, the doubts. You're the only one that has this. Do you realize there is nobody else in your church who has ever been through anything like this? Nobody else's mate has ever been unfaithful to them. Nobody else's mate has ever lied to them. Nobody, nobody else's mate has ever stolen money from the bank account and used it for their personal good. No, you're, a lot, you're the only person. Exactly what Satan wants you to think. That your situation your struggle, the nature of it, the intensity of it, the duration of it, is in fact unique. And if it is in fact unique, it is implied that it is unfair. Do you follow me? That's what Satan wants to do. He wants you to doubt that God is good. What does God say? There's no temptation that you're facing that is not common to man. Which is to say what? I should expect trials in my life. I should expect that the evil one will target me if I am trying to do anything for him. I should expect that he will be soliciting me to evil to take me down. That's what 1 Peter 5 is saying, isn't it, in verse 8? Your adversary, the devil, goes about like a roaring lion, seeking someone to 
bless? No, someone to devour. What does he want to do? Through the, 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 the fear, through the lie of, of doubt about the goodness of God, he wants to take you out. And Paul goes right after it and says, there isn't anything you're facing that someone around you hasn't faced, and certainly that your Savior has not faced for you. So I love the songs we sung this morning, Carmelo. Uh, just think about that. You're not alone. Satan wants to think you are. He wants you to think you're the only high school student that has to face sexual temptation. The only high school student that has to fight gossip and, and the drama that's present. The only high school student that, that wants to stay moral. You're the only one. So what do he wants you to think? Because once he's isolated you, you become weak and vulnerable and afraid. And you have no one there to prop you up. He wants you to think your situation is unique. But Jesus said, in this world, you will face testing. There's no secret, folks. So when Satan says, you know what, this is, this is unfair of God. What do you say? What's well, the truth? You know, you know what, Jesus told me this would happen. And I'm... Wouldn't this be beautiful if we could say, you know what, I was ready for you today. And here's the sword of the Spirit. Take that. Okay? That we would be ready. We would think it uncommon. No, Christian living is about facing the temptations of lesser pleasures and lesser joys that seek to creep into the spot or onto the shelf where God sits and where he alone deserves to be. And other things try to creep up. What do you have to do? With the truth of the word, you have to swipe them away so that God alone is at the forefront of your life. What you're facing it's common to man. Somebody else has gone through what you're facing. You know what we want to do? We want to kind of stir up a pity party, don't we? We want our situation to look unique because then we have an excuse for our behavior. The first thing Paul says is, hey, what you're going through is common. And did not Paul face this? Demas has forsaken me. He loved this present world. Alexander the coppersmith has done me much harm. Did Paul face trials? Did he know what it was to be rejected? Read the book of 2 Corinthians. What's it about? It's about slandering the Apostle Paul because he thinks he's all that. And what does Paul? Paul lists his life in Christ and he's saying, who in the world are they talking about? The contradiction of sinners. Hebrews 12. Look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross so that you don't grow weary and lose heart. Jesus experienced what you experienced. Why? So that when you come before him, he is a faithful high priest who has endured everything you're facing victoriously. And by the Spirit, he comes to aid you, to give you the possibility of success in your Christian life. What you're facing is normal, okay? Your struggles don't make you weird, okay? They don't make you odd. They're normal. They're common. They may be different in different ways, but they're common to man. Everybody has them. Secondly, and I love this truth, and God is faithful. What does that mean? It means that God is true to who he says he will be. He is true to protect you. He's true to be your shepherd. He's true to be the father who says, I will never leave you nor first. I will not do it. It's who I am. What does that mean in context? Well, in context, faithfulness is now defined. And God is faithful. What does that mean? It means he will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. That is what? Sounds to me like a promise. It's not a fact. It's a promise. It is to be personally applied to my life on a daily basis. God is faithful. Therefore what? He will not let you face something that you can't stand up under. He will not let you face a circumstance that threatens to take you out. 
without being there to be sure that it does not take you out. Now, does it mean that you can face all trials on your own? Is that what it means? God forbid. Think of Peter. Think of Peter in the garden on the eve of the crucifixion of Christ. Jesus says, Peter, Satan has desired to sift you like wheat. He wants to take you down. But I have prayed for you. You know what Satan said to Peter? He ain't praying for you. He's off doing what he's doing. He's got enough trouble of his own. What did Jesus say? Jesus said, Peter, I have prayed for you. And I am praying for you. In what setting? In a setting when Peter fell asleep. When Jesus said what? Watch and pray. Pray for me. He took those three, Peter, James, and John, into the garden so that they would what? Pray for him and be with him because he understood. It was a team sport. It wasn't just about Jesus. It was about the disciples. And he brings them along to do what? Well, presumably to pray and to be there to support. And he comes out and what are they doing? They're sound asleep. Well, what does a Savior like that do? Is he vindictive? He says, well, you said you would pray and you didn't pray for me. So I'm not going to pray for you. No, he prays because that finds him sleeping. He goes back and prays for him again. And after the resurrection, what does he do? He comes to Peter and says, Peter, do you love me? Not a mention. Not a mention of his failure. An implied forgiveness through the work of the cross. Restoration. And Peter, go. Go. Yes, you failed, but get up and go. We all fail. We all fall down. We all fall short. Our temptations, the solicitations to evil are limited or controlled by a sovereign God who is faithful in his sovereign work in our lives. And his sovereignty, Psalm 115.3 tells me, is utterly exhaustive. Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. That is, he allows difficult circumstances to come into your life, to grow you. And he allows the evil one to solicit you to evil so that you can stand And say, I don't need that lesser pleasure because I have a greater pleasure in God. And may this be our answer. In the feeding of the 5,000, what did Jesus do to the disciples? He said to them, before he went and taught, he said, hey, there's a whole lot of people here. You give them something to eat. And he walks away. Was he soliciting them to evil? I'm going to watch this. They're going to really fall down. Is that what's going on? Now, you know what he's doing? He's setting them up. Through a trial that he brought into their... And they're saying, where are we going to get enough food? We don't have enough money. We've got five loaves and two fishes. And what is that compared to this? And what are they? They're fretting and doubting. And, and who put them there? Jesus. By sovereign design, he put them in that spot. He put them in that place of pressure and testing. In fact, if you go to the Gospel of John, it says this. It says, he did this to test them. Same word for temptation as a solicitation to evil, or as a trial that grows you. Same word. What was his purpose? His purpose was so that when the meal was over, there would be 12 men who would be utterly stupefied and mystified because they're all holding a basket of God's provision. And what did they just say? What is that compared to this? And Jesus, I think, said to them, what is that? Where did that come from? What a lesson And from that, what does he say to them? He says, I am the bread of life. Don't ever doubt my goodness. Remember my provision in a miraculous circumstance that I brought you into. 
He is sovereign, folks. So whatever you're facing, it's controlled by God. It's modified so that you can do what? Go to the last part of the verse. It says, when you are tempted, he will provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. That's fascinating, isn't it? It says he's going to provide a way out, presumably what? Out of it, so that you can stand up under it. Is that weird to you? He's going to provide a way out of the trouble so that you can stand up under the trouble. What does that mean? It means that the way you're considering, the path you're trying to choose or select that denies the power of God, that belittles God, that doesn't find pleasure in God, is not an appropriate option for a Christian. What does God want you to do? He wants you to stay in the situation He has allowed you to come into and stand. And in that standing, what is He giving you? He's giving you a way out. Because what's the pressure tempting you to do? It's tempting you to go the way of evil. What does He say? He's saying, stay put. If I put you there, stay there. And stand in what? In the power that God provides. And the power that he provides here is described as what? It's described as the way out. The picture is of, a, of an army encampment that's trapped. And they're looking for a way out. The word in the Greek is this. It's ek, basis. Basis is way, ek is out. He will give you a way out. A way to get out of a situation where you feel surrounded and where you feel as if death is imminent spiritually. What is he saying? I'm faithful. So in that situation, do what? Stand. Stand your ground for the glory of God. Okay? And, and, and trust him that he will give you everything you need so that the situation that is common to all, that is controlled by God, is also conquerable in the power of God. That's the flow. So Satan comes to tempt with a snicker, with a sneer, an attempt to snooker you to think that God is not good. 1 Corinthians 10.13 has a response. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. And by the way, what you're going through, everybody faces things like this. He will make a way out so that you can stand up under it. I thought of a song that we sing in church. It has a verse in it that says this, and there will be an end to these troubles. But until that day comes, what am I going to do? Still, I will trust you. Which takes us back to Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, which takes us back to the verse before the Ephesians 2, 10. God's going to finish what he started. And if you trust him, if you rest in him, if you understand that these trials that I'm facing are not mean things that God is doing to get me to fall, it's God showing me that you can stand. And when you stand in amazing circumstances, what happens? You stand in the middle of a struggle. You find that your spiritual soul is, is built up. You are, you are edified in it. Last Sunday, we were up at Jim Thorpe with a friend that I had met recently, invited another family to go, Doug Finkbeiner and his wife, meet us up at Jim Thorpe. They had released the dam above, and we were down at... i watch my language in church. They released the water from above, okay? And the water comes through what's called the Lehigh Valley Gorge, which is at the base of Glenoco Falls, just outside of, and I think... Uh, I think it's on the south side of Jim Thorpe. As a result of the release, you could, you could walk into the water, but it was, it was fast. I don't, I'm not a good judge of water speed. I'm going to say 10 to 12 knots. It's probably moving. So, okay, I'll walk out there. You go walking out into the water, and what do you suddenly realize? I can only stand in water about up to my knee. 
before my feet are starting to move along on the slippery bottom and starting to get wiped out. Well, some of the kids standing there, along with their dads, the guy that went with, his name is Jeff, his daughter uh, Jillian, that's not the right name, that's his older daughter, Lauren, Lauren, oh, Jordan, sorry, yeah, because Larry was there with us. Okay, so he's like, hey, come out in the water. He's like, Dad, I, I can't do that. So, well, come on, come on. What do you think he did as a dad? Just let his daughter get tumbled through the rocks and, oh, come on, honey, come on. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm thinking, man, I wish Jessica was here so I could do that to her. <laughs> no, what did he do? He reached out his hand and called her into a test. He called her to do something she couldn't do, but could do if she held his hand. So what situation are you facing today where God has said, come on, come on. I'm safe on the pebbles on the beach. They're dry. They're not slippery. I'm good. I'm fine. Your joy standing on the beach is nothing like the joy that you find in the middle of the river. Standing where you thought you could not because you took the hand of God. What's the alternative? The alternative is wade out into the river because life is full of rivers that you have to cross. Wade out independently without God's help who is faithful. And what happens? You will find your life dashed upon the rocks of sin and destruction. And God says come, but he doesn't say, hey, I'll see how you do. And maybe I'll help you, maybe I won't. <laughs> He's like, no, he is faithful. And watch Jeff hold his daughter's hand, reposition his feet to get a stronger posture, bring out a little bit further. Why? He wanted her to have the joy standing in a situation where she could not on her own okay this is what being a dad's all about isn't it all right well, my kids think, yeah i'm the man i can i can hold you up in circumstances you couldn't face on your own that's what being a dad's all about at a selfish level what is god saying god's saying i am faithful i never let go and i can enable you to do things and to face troubles uh, solicitations to evil, circumstances that you would never choose, but, but I will allow to come into your life because I am sovereign. You see, I don't have the option of saying, option one, trials, trusting God. Option two, no trials. And I just check that by saying, God, I want the life without trials. So I check number two. No, they're common to everyone. We all face them. And how you do in them depends on whether you, in faith, take the hand of a faithful God who says, I got you. I have you. If you're here this morning, you say this, say, okay, Pastor Tim, I faced moral trials this week, and I failed. And so did I. I have another promise for you. First John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is what? Yeah. He is faithful. And will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So that even if I fail, what is God? God is what he always is. Through the blood of Christ, his son, he cleanses us from all our sin. So that I don't have to come on Sunday and say, 1 John 1, 8, if we say that we have no sin. Or act like we have no sin, which I don't think there's a difference between the two, quite honestly. The declaration or the acting are both sin. I can't say that. I can't say to any Sunday that I come here that I am without sin. 
but God is faithful. And if you've never trusted Christ, here's the hope for you. If you don't know him as the father that you can lay hold of the hand of, and you're still crossing rivers in your life, you're still being threatened by struggles and trials and solicitations to evil and things that threaten to hurt your life. You're still facing them. Faith is when I reach out and take hold of the hand of God and say, God, I, in the name of Christ, through the shed blood of Christ, I trust you to cleanse me from my sin, forgive me, and get me through this life for your glory. And when you reach out and take hold of him like that, here's what happens. The greater pleasures that sin has been acting as a substitute for, those greater pleasures will be yours in Christ. And the lesser pleasures that have been crying out to you to sin, to violate God's moral absolutes, you will realize, you will see them for what they really are. Small imitations of God that are unfaithful and destructive in your life. And when you see that, you will flee to him who is able to forgive you of your sin and bring you into a personal relationship with him that will change your life forever. And so we say this. I'm going to go from here today. And in this life, what am I going to face? I'm going to face trials because they're common to all. But God is with me. And the God who is with me is faithful. And he will not let me to fa- allow me to face something this week that I can't stand my ground under. So that there will be a way through and a way out for his glory. So, Father, we thank you this morning for your word.